So here's the quote for you. When people leave church, they uh, retain their moralism, but lose the sense of self-sacrifice and trust in others. They keep their Bible, their gun, their pro-life pen, and their MAGA hat, but also pick up a condom and a marijuana joint and lose whatever willingness they had to care for people in community. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, uh, both of us were uh, intrigued by an article in Christianity Today that for uh, lack of a better phrase, it's about the previous Christian or the Christian-esque-ness of sort of the, the South. Um, there's all sorts of sociological and religious literature out there on kind of an analysis of what it means to be Christian in the South. But this is an article that was specifically focusing on is by Daniel Williams. He's a historian, teaches at a secular university on the data on what it looks like when somebody leaves the church uh, in the South, what do they turn into essentially? So where do they go? And the reason that this is interesting to him is that the setup is that if you look at New England, and historically, and it's highly kind of very Catholic saturated area, then you have a whole series of scandals and abuses within the Catholic church and other denominations. And that whole region by and large stepped back from the church, but maintained uh, and developed a, a severe like, like democratic outlook uh, on, and I'm, I'm using the, the partisan political term there. They, New England votes Democrat, and there's a bit of a surprise there because of some of the historical connections, and I guess in some ways not surprising. But anyway, he's taking that same movement and saying, okay, what happens when the South follows suit? What happens when you have people in the South stepping back from the churches? What type of people do they become? And he makes the case that if um, disenfranchised evangelical Protestant basically uh, was a religious category. It would be the largest religious category in the South. Um, and the reason for that is he says there's a, a similar, and we won't repeat it all. We'll leave the article in the footnotes here, but there's a similar thing. If you have uh, certain structural breaks, breakdowns, and then a series of scandals and people just step back from their religious connections, but they maintain some of the political momentum of the ideas that were inherent to the religious congregations that they were part of, um, coming out of it. And so it's a pretty wild article, but I think almost everybody who reads it will immediately be able to identify with it. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe what was your, your first thought uh, on your first read through? I was nodding my head a lot. You had sent it to me and I thought, yep, this sounds very familiar. I've had conversations that would reinforce the thesis of the article this was the first time, I'm sure this is not a new category, but it was the first time that I'd come across the category of lapsed evangelical Protestant. That was the phrase I, I butchered, yeah. yeah. Lapsed evangelical Protestant would be the largest religious body if it were a group. Yes, and so even anecdotally, so many people I know who are self-identifying Christians barely go to church at all. Their attendance has dropped off steeply, and you know they'll, they'll do the typical, you know, you go around Easter, in Christmas, but other than that, and don't see a problem with that either. So wouldn't well, here, see that. Here, here's the number. 45% of white Southerners self-reported attending church no more than once a year. Yeah, that's dramatic. 
And so, I mean, the parallel that this this the writer is drawing here is, of course, what just happened at the Southern Baptist Convention. So you have major, major scandal. Now, preceding that scandal, there was already a decline in the South that's been happening. And again, that parallels New England. So there was there was a steady decline in attendance in the Catholic Church. And then the scandal hit. I believe that was was that 2004? I think something like that. And when when the Boston article broke, and that mm-hmm. was a monumental change and shift, and so what's happening here though is what's the other the other there are some interesting paradoxes or no they're not paradoxes they're contradictions. <laughs> so on the one hand, when the church attendance drops off steeply here in the South, people are generally becoming more deeply entrenched in their politics. So in this case, conservative politics. And there, so one hot button issue, abortion, gets still gets staunch opposition. However, there's some surprising leniency on other issues. One of them would be marijuana. Mm-hmm. That one, Home- and that one actually did surprise me a little bit. Yeah, so there, there's a more liberal attitude when it comes to marijuana usage the legalization same sex of marijuana marriage. same sex marriage that one also surprised accepted. me yep yep highly accepted and also another one and cohabitation yeah so 68% said premarital sex was not an ethical issue at all but and here's another fascinating feature of the article those who are regular church attenders tend to have a less paranoid view of life and their politics tend to be less extreme. They tend to yeah. be of the general persuasion that most people deep down are fairly decent, you know, just trying to get by, that they're not trying to hurt you. But those who don't go to church on a regular basis have a deep suspicion of strangers and essentially mm-hmm. think, no, most of these people will take advantage of me. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a hyper-individualism really is the... yes. That's the word that's missing. It's yeah, very hyper individualistic. That's the permutation in the South. So I do think that it's conceivable that so there's for the time being staunch opposition to the issue of abortion. But if you follow the thought pattern here to its logical conclusion, it does seem conceivable to me that there will be more of an embrace of the pro choice mindset if many of the the people continue on this track of basically hyper individualism you know, do what you want, elevating and prioritizing human choice. It just, it makes a lot of sense to say that I think it's conceivable we'll see a wider accept, acceptance of abortion in the South than we have in the past. Yeah, it's it's hard to think that that's not coming. Let me give you yeah. one quote here that I, I think we'll, we'll use this as kind of a conclusion of us referring directly to the article and then spin off on some of the other things that we think of in, re, in regard to this. But here, this is close to the conclusion. So here's the quote for you. When people leave church, they uh, retain their moralism, but lose the sense of self-sacrifice and trust in others. They keep their Bible, their gun, their pro-life pen, and their MAGA hat, but also pick up a condom and a marijuana joint and lose whatever willingness they had to care for people in community. And so that, I think, is a pretty bold statement, and you have to go read the article. I mean, that's the conclusion of what he's been saying previously, so you'll have to see if, if you agree with that and think it makes sense or not. But that's the the conclusion of uh, his historical analysis of the data and the survey results of those who step back from the church. And he's talking about 
um, Protestants in the South who are white. So that's just, uh, that's the subset we're, we're referring to here. But there's a good chance that you know somebody who fits that category. And that's why we thought this would be worth pursuing a bit. I'm going to venture a thought here, Nathan. Okay. Oh, boy. So, yeah. So the I think folk wisdom is going to say the problem is that the church is finds itself increasingly irrelevant in our cultural moment, and we need to get with it. We need to work harder. We need to be more cutting edge. We need to make more compelling presentations. We need better communicators. I think that is completely and totally wrong. I don't think that's what's Do going tell. on here. Yes. Well, now... Take it with a grain of salt. This is Cameron McAllister's pet theory. What I think is actually happening is that the social advantages of church attendance are dwindling. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I think now that's been happening. Now, this is where geography. You you, you better clarify what you mean by that, because I think there are some massive social advantages of attending church. So be, be a little bit more specific there. Oh, certainly. Yeah. No, I'm talking about in the most superficial sense of keeping up with the Joneses' social advantages. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about country club Christianity, as it's sometimes referred to. So you don't go to church for to really to worship the Lord in spirit and truth so much as you do to keep up with people, to be a staple of the community, because this is just something that an upstanding citizen well, does. You might be worried about what people think about you if you're not there. Exactly. It's good for your reputation, right? It bolsters your social standing, that sort of thing. Now, geography is a very important element here, right? Because this dropped off steeply a long time ago, I think, in the Northeast. I think it persists a little bit in the Midwest, but I think there's a pretty precipitous decline there. But in the South, this this has remained the case still for a while. And I think if you go to smaller towns, you will still find some of this mindset. But it is dwindling. So you're having a lot of people walk away from church who weren't really there to worship God in the first place. So in some ways, I think that this is just a cold shower that's happening, and we're getting a sobering picture of the actual nature of faithfulness in the United States. So yeah, I know that that might (laughs) strike you as a little bit of a hot take, uh, but joy and (laughs) Good cheer this morning. Sure. The okay, so all right, is that so? Yeah. So where do we go from here? So we just say, okay, that's interesting to know. Um, what is the what's the response? Like what? So okay, so then so what? I think well, so then what we need to recognize, and we're saying this over and over again, but I don't think. I don't I still don't think we've fully appreciated the fact that here in the United States we are in mission territory. This is now this is a mission field has been actually for quite a while. You see what's happening if if what I said if even a fraction of what I said is true then that means one of the biggest mission fields for us and I'm this is not my statement this is Dallas Willard one of the mission, biggest mission fields in North America is the church many of the Christians in the pews. I want to tread very carefully there because this is not meant as a denigration of the church. This is meant to show how religiously complex the United States is. And it's also there. I mean, I'm also pointing out that if you have at your disposal some sort of spiritual camouflage, which church attendance was for a while, it is very, it's easy to hide. 
But when you reach a moment of cultural crisis where the social advantage goes away, I'm not prepared to say that Christians are being persecuted in the United States right now. I think there's maybe some, maybe we're being pestered a little bit. Maybe there's a little bit less sympathy and tolerance for Orthodox Christianity. But when that social advantage goes away, then you're going to find a lot of people who don't, who never really worship God in the first place. They'll go, they'll, they'll head for the aisles. They'll leave. Maybe they'll come back on Easter, but to recognize. So the first takeaway is recognize that you're in mission territory. Don't, don't walk around with a sense of permanent suspicion or anything like that, but don't take for granted. You want to, this is where those verses on being seasoning our speech as with salt are going to be really important. We want to be salt and light, even in the midst of areas that we think are possibly deeply churched. Yeah, so you could be listening to this and thinking, oh man, this is terrible, all the people leaving and all that. I let me let me give a, a flip side to this. So if there is some parallel degree to which this mirrors and mimics what happened in New England two decades ago or what have you, here's here's my thought on this. I think in a lot of places, so I lived in the greater Boston area for three years, um, spent most of that time speaking at colleges and universities all up and down kind of Dartmouth, Harvard, Brown, MIT, like I was kind of in the thick of it uh, with student groups, kind of in the intellectual world there. And you know what? There are Christians at all of those places. Um, and there are also really great churches all throughout New England. And so I think there's been a sense in which some parts of the country have sort of looked at New England as the vortex of evil. Um, and so, yes, it is not a Christianly dynamic place anymore. I think including Catholic church attendance, you're looking at something like 7% or something. I mean, so mm-hmm. very low compared to the rest of the country. However, and this is where I think there's a note of optimism in this, uh, is that if you if you were <laughs> running around in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and bumped into somebody who mentioned that they were a Christian, you had a live one on the wire there. I mean, it was like, because there's no social pressure to identify like that, or to say that, or to mention that. In fact, there was perhaps a cost to it. And so mm-hmm. what it meant is that there was a real purification, I think, in a lot of ways, of the churches that did exist and that were strong and thriving and growing were very, uh, very steady, very stable, very secure, very clear, orthodox, and just doing great stuff in the world and were a phenomenal witness to the community around them because they were only filled with the people who were really committed to being there in a purely worshiping, trying to grow and serve the Lord faithfully and do that together as a community. So that's not to say that it isn't sad to see people leaving the church, but it is just a reminder that the church does not die when those who are half-heartedly attending or who are doing it for the wrong reason leave. Yes, the numbers may go smaller, the institutions and the huge church with the paved parking lot might go away, but the church does not disappear and it doesn't lose its witness. And, you know, all is not lost here. And so I don't think that's me being overly optimistic. That's just based off of three years of experience of getting to travel around pastors' conferences and church conferences and visiting and preaching to different churches and congregations, um, I was very excited about the the spiritual life and energy that I saw coming from a, a lot of good places there. So just let me throw that in there as a, as a footnote, or it's bigger than a footnote at this point. Is that a leg note? I don't know. Anyway, um, that all is not lost here. This is not actually despair. This is us just saying, okay, let's be realistic about what we're seeing in the world and then think about how we want to live and respond. Um, and inoculate ourselves against some of the things that we might see as pathologies, religiously speaking, in our subcultures and social circles. 
Yeah. And again, I think this is actually good news. Cultural Christianity is very insidious and very bad, and we want to see it die. Now, oh boy. <laughs> I think a, a lot of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, but there's a line for you. But a lot of us don't realize, and this is where there's, you know, this that's a convicting thought for me personally as well. I mean, I've enjoyed many of the outsized advantages to being a Christian here in the Bible Belt South. And losing those is sometimes painful for me. I mean, you are you are losing a degree of influence, you're losing a degree of power, and people want to hold on to those things. But look, if Scripture is any indica- indication, the church is at her best often when she is least powerful and has the least amount of cultural influence. Now, that doesn't mean we deliberately embrace total irrelevance, but it means that we prioritize faithfulness over influence. And I think yeah, for your church is going to have North to do America, some triage here on what it wants to focus yes. on. Yeah, what it wants to focus on. So cultural Christianity, I mean, I can say this as I wince, we want that to die. It needs to go away. We need the honesty. We need to see things as they actually are. We need to face reality. That's really important. But also what Nathan said is absolutely true. And I can draw on my my own missionary background to confirm it as well. I mean, I lived in Vienna, Austria. Austria is nominally Catholic. It's a secular country now. If you are a Christian there, you are automatically an outsider. People don't necessarily mistreat you. They just don't, ex- they, they don't really know how to talk to you because <laughs> they think, what, people, people still go to church? It's such an odd thing to do. I mean, that's, by the way, if you want a picture of truly post-Christian culture, go to a place where if you tell people you're going to church on Sunday, they're just confused by that. Wow. How? You know, how quaint. You still go to church on Sunday? Ooh, That's the way it hey, is in Austria. Wait a second, though. Let me let me interrupt you here. Because, and tell me if this is a parallel experience, because in New England, there were true liberals in the sense that um, I, was, I was actually never persecuted or really... So, so, so you can sit down and share your faith with somebody who thinks you're a complete nut, and they would look at you and say... Mm-hmm. I'm glad that works for you. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. So there there wasn't a persecution. It was a general attempt to be open to all ideas. And so I think sometimes we think that the next step after Christianity is a hostile culture. And, and that does happen in transition. But on the other side of that, there's just like an apathy to caring. Um, and so maybe, well, here's, is, am I hearing yeah. you say that's kind of what it sounded like from your situation as well? Yes, you are. And it's worth pointing out, by the way, that a university campus is not an accurate reflection of the way most of the public <laughs> yeah. live their lives, right? So on you may get topic. some of those more aggressive, right, on any topic. You may get some of those more aggressive or even hostile attitudes on a university campus. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, if if drawing on my own experience in Austria, the general person, it's not even that they were anti-theist or atheist or skeptic. Most of them didn't give it any thought whatsoever. I mean, it was it was literally sort of relegated to the dustbin of history in their mind. So they just, they, yeah, thought, where, yeah, where am I going to get, I need to go shopping today. Where's my next cup of coffee going to come? You know, the, here are my priorities, you know, got to pay the taxes, all of that. Wait, 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 worry about God, the afterlife? Come on, what is this? The mid, This isn't medieval times, is it? It's so interesting that you think that. So it was more it was more along those lines, but also, like you said, Nathan, the solidarity that you had then with actual Christians. And by mm-hmm. the way, 
the fact if you ran into somebody there who was a self-identifying Christian, a professing Christian, the chances were this was the real deal. And it was, I mean, you're, so you tended to have a smaller, less culturally influential church, but a much more spiritually potent church of people, well, hang men on. and women of deep conviction gathered yeah, together. So, yeah. In smaller well, numbers, but yeah, well, we there. have to, we, we have to also think though about like, what do we mean by cultural influence? Because politically do, cultural yes. influence much lower on serving the poor uh, and a bunch of missional outreach and, and real contributions to the community around them, they were actually massively influencing the, the culture around them. So, um, yeah, you can do big That's things true. with small numbers so, if the Lord is uh, helping you multiply your efforts. Yeah. And to clarify what I mean by that, yeah, when I'm saying it like that is generally more the politics, money, and power, which, yeah, is going to be in short supply, I think, going forward. But as far as deep-rooted influence on individual communities and lives and people, and that makes a massive, indelible difference, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you do. <laughs> see, that's one of the key lessons of what's scripture, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't dependent on those systems. Now, it's not necessarily opposed to them. You know, you can you can work within those fields and be a faithful witness, but God doesn't need the right person in the Oval Office to see his will, his will realized and to see his church flourishing. When so, we do that, we are inadvertently putting all of the onus on human efforts. And that, that's a secular mindset. It's not a Christian mindset. It's understandable that we slip into it, but we're mistaking human ambition and human ingenuity for the will of God. It's a serious mistake, and we need to guard against it. Yeah, well, so it's not like there's a bunch of stuff that's happening here that is, okay, we have to process it in our time. But if we brainstorm this out like another 20 years, so hear ye, O young listener, so take that group of people that we're talking about who have stepped away from the church and they've they've retained their Bible, uh, how they're using it. They go to church less than once a year, that kind of thing. What what are their children going to believe when they grow up? I think the the, the Bible part is very easy to drop out of that. So you're looking at a massive cultural shift in the very, I would say, I would call it near future, where those of you mm -hmm. who 20 years from now want to be faithful to the Lord are going to have to prepare yourself to be extremely different and live a, an extremely different life than the rest of the culture around you. And so the fact of the matter is, is that the South felt like a place to a lot of people where that wasn't the case, and it will happen. Like It's just the nature of spiritual entropy, I guess you could call it. Um, now, mm -hmm. the Lord can yep. bring about revival. When we say we want to see cultural Christianity die, that's not that we want to see people die. We want to see people come back into relationship with the Lord and uh, be obedient to him and fully embrace the grace that he offers and live a life of obedience in a way that uh, honors the Lord. So that's what we're hoping for. But if it's just left up to our own schemes here, things are going to get way weirder than they are right now if some of these trends continue, which I don't have any reason to suspect that they wouldn't based on how it's played out in other parts of our country and the rest of the world. That being said, maybe I'm naive here, but I'm still not pessimistic about it all. Sort me out, Cameron, on that one. No, I'm definitely no, I'm definitely not pessimistic. But I mean, again, the the way of the cross is necessarily not going to be the most appealing way for the masses. 
This is why our Lord tells us to count the cost before we decide to become his disciples and follow him. And a good litmus test here on really the focus of your church, and I'm choosing my words carefully here because I think, like Nathan does, that the church is God's A plan for the evangelization of the world, but churches also get distracted. So a good test case for you is, does your church prioritize obedience to Jesus? It has been my experience. And, that's, and that was spoken by a Presbyterian, ladies and gentlemen. That was spoken by a Presbyterian. Yeah, so I, so speaking from, from my lane, I can, I've, I've, I've seen some challenges in this area. I have. And I think you get a lot of, you can get a lot of distraction. And it has been my experience, and I'm sure it has has been for you as well. That that many churches, I've that I've seen in my in my area and in my travels, with the best of intentions, are highly focused on preaching the gospel, having as many people hear it as possible, and getting as fancy and big and powerful a megaphone as they can but that obedience to Christ is quite a marginal item on the agenda, if it's there at all. Maybe it's it's stuffed away or tucked away in some small group or some Sunday school class. So that is something we all need to be. I say that not to have a vision of people being unleashed, unleashed as critics in their churches, just going to, to leadership and giving them an earful at all. Not at all, no. But I think conversations need to be happening. And I think that these are conversations that will be sobering because I think when you do this, and again, it's hard to it's hard to overemphasize just how much Dallas Willard as a thinker has influenced me in a lot of a lot of what I say. But so just, you know, just assume he's in the background of a lot of these observations. But he had he had pointed out when you do this, if you if you start talking about making obedience to Jesus the main focus, you are going to have people who are angry and are going to say, this was not part of the deal. I mm. thought that I just needed to believe the right things. And now you're adding all of this extra curriculum. Now you're adding all this extra work. What is going on? And of course, what's happening is that we're not adding extra. A deep misunderstanding has taken place. We've talked about this before, but that the notion that you can, as long as you believe all the right things about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you do with your life. And in no other realm do we have that line of thinking. We would it's never look at a doctor. It's becoming less coherent but, as a concept within the church, essentially, is what's it because is. of external cultural And see, cultural that's pressures. part of what I... Well, exactly, external cultural pressures. And that's why a lot of people outside the church are justifiably saying... Gosh, you guys either don't believe you guys are either hypocrites or you don't really believe what you're saying you you do, you know, given some of your actions, given some of your responses and they're not wrong. It's hard to say that, but we need to this is why this is why Nathan and I care so deeply and are focused on the church because we are part of the church, we love the church, and we do want to see renewal. But you see a lot of people will talk about, oh, we want we want revival, we want renewal. What always precedes revival and renewal is intense repentance. <laughs> yeah, and that's not fun. <laughs> but it's 
very necessary. I mean, it's part that, that's growing pains right there. And it's so, what my my grandpa oh, always says: yeah. if you want to feel close to God, or no, if you want to feel spiritual, don't get close to God. You know, it's, yeah. it's, there you go. The, yep. uh, that that element of uh, oh yeah, and and Presbyterian Cameron likes the way that one sounds right there, <laughs> but. Yeah, so I think we need to, we really need to be pressing in, in all of our communities, in our churches, to obedience to Christ and seeking in our small ways, not not through malicious gossip, not through unkind confrontations, but holistically, prayerfully, kindly, and firmly pressing into making obedience to Jesus a priority in our churches and in our lives, actually I mean, I mean, but to go back to what I was saying earlier, we don't do this in any other realm of life. Life. I mean, who can imagine a doctor or a you know a lawyer or a car mechanic, all of whom only had textbook theoretical knowledge about their respective fields? Right. Well, I've studied a lot about cars. I know about, but have you ever actually you know fixed a car, worked you know popped the hood? Well, no, but I know all about cars. I know all about brain surgery. I've never actually performed that. There's a reason we have, we put our doctors in residencies. There's a reason that, you know, mechanics go through apprenticeship phases. I mean, why would it be any different with Jesus Christ? The only way you can think that is if you've tacitly assumed that the spiritual life isn't really real in the first place. And many of us have unwittingly done that. And okay. that's where we just, this, we have to come to our senses. But how, so let's talk a little bit about how you don't become that. Because clearly lots of people do, uh, if the survey data is to be believed. And part of it is, I like, it, Marilyn Robinson is a bit of a genius in her analysis where she says, part of what makes America, America, is that every single person can think of themselves as a group that's a minority. So you have an entire nation yeah. of people who their participation in a group makes them the minority in respect to some other group. And so everybody then can feel like they're marginalized. Everybody can feel like they're threatened. Um, everywhere you go, that's that's true. And that can breed kind of an interesting individualism where you say, okay, I'm just going to take care of myself and what's mine and my family, and I'm going to hunker down and bunker down, and this is the way that we're going to make it through the world is I'm going to, to do this. And there are lots of ways in which you can justify doing that, even using scripture. Um, I heard some, I've heard some interesting exegetical maneuvers in order to justify that way of being. However, and here's the big however, there's a very practical element to taking Christ serious. And that has to do with, it just, he just talks about a lot of this stuff if you read it. And so I'd like to read you a couple of verses here from Matthew chapter 24, where the disciples are asking Jesus about how things go down in the end. I've heard multiple times this week from people out in the community conversation that, you know, the end times have to be here from Elon Musk satellites to whatever. Um, everybody sees everything flying apart. Here's what Jesus says. Watch out that no one deceives you. Okay, well, there's a whole sermon right there on suspicion of the media, of suspicion of institutions, suspicion of other people, a lack of trust, a breakdown of trust to the degree that you then don't trust anyone. And then you can probably be deceived by anybody with a YouTube account. So, first of all, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come uh, in my name claiming that I am the Christ. So there are going to be a lot of people who are going to claim to be the Savior of the world, and that if you put your faith and confidence in them, they will solve all of your problems. So, many Christ. Again, proliferation of that. And will deceive many. So, 
not surprised when other forms of salvation show up and people jump on board with that. Okay, so far Jesus is batting a thousand. You will hear of wars. Okay, yep, rumors of wars. This line, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Get this one. All of these are the beginning of the birth pains. So when you see wars, famines, earthquakes, chaos, false messiahs, the deceit of many, you should look around and say, yeah, that looks about right. That's what Jesus said will happen. And that's just the warm up round. You will then be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. <laughs> all right. That's a great future. Thank you, Jesus. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. So uh, are statistics that show people turning away from the faith surprising to you? Should not be. And will betray and hate each other. And many fa false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And then here's the one that I think is really challenging. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then it talks about the gospel being preached all throughout the world. But that idea that because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold is especially haunting to me, Cameron, because mm. I think that's where the challenge for those of us who are listening to this and wanting to be serious about what God is asking of us in this time. So yeah, we kind of spitballed about 20 years down the road. But no, like today, if you see the increase of wickedness in the world around you, do not let your love grow cold. Mm -hmm. And so the, the temptation is we see wickedness and we hole up and we circle the wagons and we say, I'm going to use the resources that I have to take care of me and protect what is mine. And I'm going to honor the Lord in doing that. And that's just hard to make that case, biblically speaking. Do not let your love for the other grow cold. Do not forsake meeting together. You need community. You need fellowship. You need people to help you think through these things. You just have to do it. Um, or else what we see all around us is your future. And so, and then that's not being paranoid about it. It's just saying that Jesus sort of sets up a simple, if this, then this kind of thing. And so if you don't want that, then do this. So reading what Jesus said about this stuff makes a phenomenal amount of sense to me. Um, <laughs> just have to think he's probably the wisest person who knows about how reality works. So I don't know. It's just that I think that's a, it's so easy to be deceived. It's so easy to be alarmed. It's so easy to see the increase of wickedness and then just say, okay, I'm going to bunker, hunk, you know, hunker down and take care of me. And that is exactly not what Jesus did and not what Jesus modeled for us at any phase of his life. And so if we're going to take this seriously and lean into this, that's going to make, like, we can talk about revival in the country. We can talk about change in the church. No, actually, it probably means like daily change in Nathan's life. And probably for some of you listening too, to say that I want to lean into and work within the chaos and the brokenness and the difficulty of the world. It's what Jesus did. It's what all the famous Christians and those who we celebrate through the past did. And so, uh, yeah, I think anybody who ends up being crucified is probably going to be okay prescribing difficulty in your life in order for you to be a faithful witness to what God wants to have done in the world. So I don't know. That's, uh, I think a place for us to end there, maybe on this conversation, I, I do hope you go back and read the article and that you think about it, but don't think about it like in a way of like looking down your nose at other people and saying, Oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like that. Look at it as a way of what is the Lord challenging me about in my life? And what do I need to do in order to maintain my faithfulness and my connections and commitments through relationships that the Lord has blessed me with? And the highest one of those being our lifetime allegiance to Jesus Christ.
Ponder on these things. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, the podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.